Chapter 2, Part 3 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 3 Earning Money for Medical Study, 1845 to 1847. Asheville, July 27, 1845. Dear Mother, I received your welcome letter last night while engaged in your favorite Saturday evening's employment, singing hymns. A stranger minister who was to preach next day had just arrived, and I, seated at the piano, surrounded by the girls, was supplying him with sacred entertainment when Howard Dixon laid your letter beside me. I smiled and gave an involuntary quaver in the come holy spi which made the girls giggle. But seeing the four eyes of the two ministers bent astonishedly upon us, I pulled a long face, the girls straightened theirs, and we continued, Spirit, Heavenly Dove. I soon ran off with a candle and my letter, and read with eagerness all the profane parts, and most of the religious, as it is a first letter. I am very glad that you derive so much peaceful satisfaction from Upham. I know it has a soothing influence, for whenever I had to go into your room of an afternoon, I found you asleep on the bed with the book in your hand but I find no lack of such books here. Jonathan Edwards on the affections, which I have lately read, has the same peaceful tendency. I have just performed my first professional cure, and am already dubbed Dr. Blackwell by the household. I mesmerized away a severe headache that afflicted Miss O'Hara, a kind-hearted, childlike, black-haired little old maid, the favorite of the family and a special pet of the children. She had just recovered from a very severe attack of illness and great suffering in the mouth from calomel, which made her declare that no physician ought to receive his diploma till he has been salivated that he may know the torture he is inflicting on his patients. I went into her room last night and found her suffering from an intense throbbing headache. I offered to relieve her, half doubting my own powers, never having attempted anything of the kind, but in a quarter or half an hour she was entirely relieved and declared some good angel had sent me to her aid. I have just returned from the Sunday school which we have organized today for the slaves. When I first came here, I determined to teach all the slaves I could to read and write, and elevate them in every way in my power, as the only way I could reconcile it to my conscience to live amongst them but to my consternation I found that the laws forbade it, and that Dr. Dixon was not willing to evade them. 
not the slightest effort was made to instruct them in any way, except that now and then a sermon was preached to them, but they had to labor on without a ray of light or hope. It was intolerable to me, and I proposed at last we should have Sunday school and give them real instruction, and as such a scheme had been talked of about a year ago, I found a few who were willing to engage in the undertaking. Accordingly, this afternoon at three o'clock, we made a beginning. Four ladies and one gentleman, with about twenty-five scholars, we have a class of men, women, boys, and two of girls. I take one of the latter, four girls, from eight to twelve years old. I assure you I felt a little odd, sitting down before those degraded little beings, to teach them a religion which the owners professed to follow whilst violating its very first principles, and audaciously presuming to stand between them and the Almighty. As I looked round the little room and saw those ladies holding forth to their slaves, fancying that now they were fulfilling every duty and were quite model mistresses, I longed to jump up, and taking the chains from those injured, unmanned men, fastened them on their tyrants till they learned in dismal wretchedness the bitterness of that bondage they inflict on their brethren. But one person can do nothing. I sat quietly teaching, and reserved my indignation to vent on this inoffensive white paper. I am afraid much cannot be done for the slaves in this way. Their minds are so obscured, and oral instruction is so tedious, that the patience of both teachers and scholars may be worn out. I, however, shall do my utmost to illuminate both head and heart, and the poor children thanked me with humble sincerity this afternoon for my efforts. You need not be afraid I shall make myself conspicuous, or gain the hated name of abolitionist. I sometimes reproach myself for my prudence and the calmness with which I answer some outrageous injustice, while I am really raging with indignation. But it is the only way in which I can hope to do any good, for the slightest display of feeling arms all their prejudices, and I am no orator to convert by a burst of passionate eloquence, so I must even go on in my own quiet manner, knowing that it does not proceed from cowardice. I wish I could give you a cheering account of numerous music scholars and French and German classes, but the place is too small for anything of the sort. I hear constantly a great deal about Charleston. Everybody seems connected with that city, and a great many of the inhabitants are spending the summer here and at the springs. I mean to make some inquiries about the schools and teachers of that city. It would be a pleasant residence in some respects. I mention this, 
not from any serious idea of going there, but that you may know the schemes that are passing through my mind. I am fixed here till December. My brain is as busy as can be, and consequently I am happy, for one is only miserable when stupid and lazy, wasting the time and doing no good to self or anybody else. So you too, mother, confirm Henry's account of the fine doings on our quiet walnut hills. I shall really begin to think that I have been the evil genius of the place, withholding the rain from the garden, the visitors from the house, for no sooner am I gone than floods of both flow down and up, and everywhere are greenness and gaiety. Very well, I certainly won't come back to bring a blight into paradise. But seriously, if Miss A.G. comes up, I hope M. will consider it a call and return it with dignity. For it seems to me H. is growing wild and turning our house into a sort of banqueting hall for Comus and his crew, which I beg M. to set her face against by taking every visit to herself. My white bonnet is much admired here. Miss Charlotte Carr sent to borrow it the other day, and has made one its exact image, flowers and all. I felt quite proud in setting the fashion in Asheville. In 1846, the Asheville school was broken up, and I resolved to try my fortunes in the South, journeying with Mrs. John Dixon to Charleston, South Carolina, exchanging the fine mountain country for the level rice fields of South Carolina. It was a striking journey, a transformation scene. It is thus described in a journal of that date. On January 14th, we left by stage early in the morning. We jolted off in the bright moonlight. The ground was frozen hard and very rough. I walked with Flynn over the Blue Ridge and the Saluda, another branch of the Alleghenies. The weather was beautiful, the air invigorating, and the mountain seemed to deserve its name. On the top of the Saluda, a stone marks the boundary of the two Carolinas. I hesitated at crossing it, for my affections are all with the old North State. At the foot we drank to its health from the Poinsett Spring, as we had promised John to do. A little afterwards we passed the wildest scenery I ever remember to have seen. The road wound down the south side of the mountain in very abrupt curves, so as to form a succession of terraces one above the other, whilst on the opposite side the wooded mountain ridge, though so near, was softened by mist, and seemed to tower to tremendous heights, though I was surprised to see how this height seemed to lessen as we descended. We reached Greenville late, after eighty miles of horribly rough staging. There we spent the next day, 
and I took a pleasant walk with Flynn by the reedy river, which rushes in cascades through rocks and wooded hills. The next two days we traveled through pretty, undulating country, gradually becoming more level. I saw the first characteristic swamp, also the palmetto and the strange gray moss, a yard long, hanging from the trees. We spent a night in Columbia. It seemed a strange revival of old associations to enter a city once more. The hotel was full of horse racers engaged in betting. The next day, a rapid railway journey brought us to Charleston by two o'clock. The country between Columbia and Charleston was much prettier than I expected. The lovely day made everything beautiful. The numerous pines, the holly, wild orange, live oak, and other evergreens seemed to give the lie to January. The moss, hanging one or two yards long from the trees, looked like gigantic webs or the ghosts of weeping willows. The rice fields, underwater, were as blue as the sky. The level cotton fields, extending for hundreds of acres with their belts of evergreens, were strange and beautiful. When we reached Charleston, we were met at the station by Dr. Sam Dixon's carriage, with its very gentlemanly negro coachman, who has been sent for Flynn and the lady. So I said good-bye to kind Mrs. John Dixon, and driving softly along to a large old-fashioned house, surrounded by a garden full of tall evergreens, I entered a spacious hall and was welcomed by Dr. Sam and Mrs. Dixon and their eldest daughter, and ushered into a handsome drawing-room, cloak, hood, smoke, and all. Dr. Samuel H. Dixon, who thus hospitably welcomed me, was a distinguished physician of Charleston and professor in the medical college of that town. He gave me kind encouragement in relation to my medical studies. Through his influence, I soon obtained a position as teacher of music in the fashionable boarding school of Mrs. Dupre a connection of the doctor, where I taught for some hours every day, spending all my spare time in pursuing the medical studies which Dr. Dixon directed. Every morning, a couple of hours were devoted before breakfast to learning the necessary rudiments of Greek, for I had only so far been acquainted with Latin." the boarding school occupied a fine old-fashioned mansion the noble drawing-room with its numerous windows overlooking the bay was the scene of my teaching duties when they were over many quiet hours were passed in that pleasant room studying the medical books which the doctor supplied from his library the severe duties of teaching and study were occasionally varied by larger interests, such as hearing a very able, though erroneous, oration on states' rights by Calhoun, 
or the more carnal pleasure of a visit to a banana plantation. John C. Calhoun's address, given to the enthusiastic meeting which crowded the theater, was noteworthy. The contrast between the calm, able orator, who appeared entirely unmoved by the rapturous demonstrations of his audience, who responded to every point in his clever but measured oratory, resembled the effect produced in our later day by the able statesman Parnell, who dominated his ardent Irish followers by a similarly contrasted mental constitution. The influence of this able statesman, John C. Calhoun, was largely instrumental in causing the Civil War in America. The following familiar home letters indicate some of the varieties in the Charleston life. Charleston, January 30th, 1847. Now, dear M., for a comfortable Sunday afternoon chat with you after a long, it seems to me a very long, silence. I've just replenished my body with a comfortable portion of our regular Sunday dinner, viz. ham, fowl, sweet potatoes, and macaroni, of which last I've grown particularly fond, and now, wrapped in my blanket shawl, I sit with my feet on the fender over the embers of the parlor fire, and as the girls are at church and only good Miss B in the room, I hope for a nice, long, quiet time. But I must tell you of a great musical treat I've had, really the highest pleasure in that way that I ever remember. No less than two concerts by Hertz and Sivery. I never have been so affected by music before, yet the first concert made me sad, homesick, and discontented. I felt as I do after reading a powerful novel of Bulver's. It was Sivery's violin that produced so strange an effect. Hertz was a smooth, brilliant piano-forte player, with considerable superficial talent, nothing more. But Sivery has genius. His playing bewildered me, I did not understand it. It seemed to me like a chaos that might become a world of beauty could I only find the word that should reduce it to order. I went home unhappy and indignant at being obliged to pass life in such a stupid place, amongst such stupid people, where is neither beauty nor intelligence nor goodness." The next concert, it went better with me. I sat near the platform immediately in front of Sivery and examined his countenance, which certainly renders his performance clearer. He is very small, his head large for his body, a fine forehead, grand eyes, a stiff, sober manner, and occasional half-suppressed smile that reminded me continually of Ellery Channing. The first piece, Il Campanello of 
Paganini was a gem, the solemn, subduing adagio with a wild, striving conclusion, and the little clear silver bell coming in continually like an angel's voice in the conflict of good and bad spirits. Then his prayer from Moise, performed on one string, was the most devout music I ever listened to. I felt as if I were worshipping in an old cathedral at twilight, and I shut my eyes not to destroy the illusion by the expressionless concert room and faces all round. The duet between Hertz and Sivery was grand. Both parts were so perfect. I went to the concert with a prejudice against Hertz, from knowing his very bad moral character, but his playing is very brilliant, though he is far from being a demeyer. He has the most self-satisfied expression in his mouth, which, as a gentleman remarked, seems to be going to eat his ears, it is so large. He was recalled after one of his pieces, and said, smiling, I will play you a piece which I composed since I am in Charleston. It is called Souvenir de Charleston. Twas quite a dashing affair, and then he extemporized beautifully on Lucy Long. I hope you may have the pleasure in Cincinnati of hearing these real artists. Oh, for the time when such music may be a daily feast for all, and when the performers shall be as noble in character as they are gifted in talent. End of chapter 2, part 3